Welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I have another powerful conversation ahead for you with my guest, Tina Strawn. In addition to being an author, podcaster, and creator of Legacy Trips, Tina describes herself as a joy and liberation advocate. And as a Black queer woman who's lived most of her life in America, Tina has had to be diligent in centering both in her own life. Born and raised in very conservative Christian spaces, Tina shares her journey of breaking free from oppressive systems and what led her to finally start focusing on her own joy and liberation above all else. In her book, Are We Free Yet? The Black Queer Guide to Divorcing America, Tina shares her relationship to both liberation and oppression and asks her readers to do the same. In our conversation, Tina talks about the chapters of her journey towards joy, freedom, and how she has learned to center liberation, pleasure, and connection in her life. We also talk about Tina's newest endeavor towards freedom called Here for the Kids, a radical movement led by Black, Brown, and Indigenous women, asking white women to step up and use their privilege to help end gun violence in America. Listen in on our conversation. So should we go ahead and start, Tina? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, Tina Strawn, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You have been on my list, on my radar for a long time. You have to know that. And then especially when your book released in January of this year, I several times started an email to you, but I'm like, I just kept pausing because I thought, gosh, everybody, she's on everybody's podcast. And I thought maybe she was just tired and just want to keep talking about this. And I really <laughs> kind of wait. I like to wait almost for like the spirit to tell me it's a good time. And I just felt it's mm-hmm. a good time. Now with Here for the Kids, which we're going to talk about, it was the time for you to come on. So I'm so glad I waited because I feel like this is the moment we were supposed to talk. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Yeah. I love that you uh, have kind of just waited on the spirit. And I agree. This is the perfect moment. So thanks for being enthusiastic about reaching out about my book. And I'm really glad that we get to talk about it now and especially inside the context of Here for the Kids. So I think think it's just perfect. And Tina, like we just mentioned, your book is called, well, your book came out in January. It's called, Are We Free Yet? The Black Queer Guide to Divorcing America. And we're going to talk about that in this hour. We're going to talk about all the things that we have time for. And I told you I was anxious and it's because there's so much to fit in, but I have to remember, we can't fit all your story in and people just need to <laughs> buy your book so they can know more about your story and your liberation journey. And I had emailed you and I said, I just finished your book twice and it resonated with me so much. And as a white woman, I told you, I know I'm not your target audience, but I need my listeners to understand. I don't care what color your skin is. Tina's book will resonate with you. And it's a message that we all need to hear because we're all part of these oppressive systems, upholding them or inundated yeah. with them or being suffocated by that, like all the things. So your book is for everybody. It's a specifically black yes. queer women, but it is for everybody. Yes, that's right. Everybody, especially who finds themselves on some kind of a liberation journey, anyone who has ask themselves, what does it mean to be free? And do I really feel like I'm free? And in what ways am I free? And what ways am I not free? So I just, I appreciate you pointing out that the book is for everyone. And it's just going to be a matter of where folks identify in terms of their sexual and gender identity, in terms of their relationship as an American, how this 
message of liberation through activism, through celebrating humanity it's, and through through people's process of grieving and healing. It's just going to depend on everyone's social, racial, gender, location, how they're going to receive it. Because it is for anyone who's ever asked themselves these questions about what does it mean to be free? What does that look like? How do I see myself interacting with freedom and with oppression because it's, you know, it's, we, we're all of us in all of our locations and identities are always interacting with oppression and with liberation at all times in just different ways. So, and that looks different for all of us, but I think it even looks different for us on different days, right? Like the ways that today I am interacting with specific systems of oppression looks different than how I was interacting with it three months ago. Again, spoiler alert for here for the kids. <laughs> That's right. And and we are going to have lots of talk about here for the kids at the end of our conversation, because your journey that you've taken up until now has has led you there. So, and we are going to touch on parts of your book and story in our conversation, but I just really, and I thought today, do I tell everybody I love their book? And I don't. So I don't say that to everybody. I really love your book, Tina. And I, um, I'm, I'm part of a writing group with Row House and Rebecca talks about it all the time. And it is just awesome. such, it is just such a, it is the work of art with how you interweave your own story, mm-hmm. the really hard parts of your story with how you're finding liberation and the questions you're posing to us and journaling. We've, we mm-hmm. were both good Bible study girls. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's kind yes, of, it's I kind was. of like a liberated Bible study, morning devotional, if you want to say, right? Okay. I, I received that. <laughs> I received that, that morning space. I thought when I okay. opened the first page back in January, you know, and I've, I've been re- removed from Christianity, religion for three or four years, but you know, we always had our morning quiet time. And I remember like looking at the first pages of your book and it says for this journal or for this book, you're going to need weed, a dildo. And I'm like, yes, I have arrived. I am reading <laughs> Books now. I am awake from the Proverbs 31 woman to start my day. Thank the Lord. Yes. 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 I'm I love that. I'm I'm a I'm awake and bake person and I'm a I'm a morning person and I love the morning. So I I really love you bringing that in, just that memory of morning devotions and waking up. And there were times where I was, what was the name of that publication? It was like a Christian youth publication. Oh, why do I want to say, I forgot the name of it, but just thinking about the different publications I would receive that had those daily morning, you know, um, um, what, what we called, um, what did you just call it? Like the devotionals? Is that what you're the saying? Devotionals. Like, yeah, devotionals. Yeah. 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 Devotionals. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, yeah. and that being, I still have my mornings that I consider the home of my spiritual practices. So I still go through a devotional type of experience every morning. It just is separate from obviously evangelical Christianity and um, the Bible. And it is a lot more, uh, it is about nature. It is about making sure that I am outside and it's, and, and for the first three to five hours (laughs) of every day. And again, there's cannabis and there's coffee and there's music and there's dancing and there's like that, that, Yes. That's what my spiritual life has been replaced yeah. with since I walked away from the church. I'm sure you can. Very similar with me. And it, yeah. it is reclaiming that space and time. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. your book has, has helped, been part of my journey with doing that. So just know that. Um, good. good. So we've good. jumped a little far ahead. I usually start off a lot more basic, but I couldn't help but just like diving in and wanting folks to buy your book, Tina. So 
Just a quick bio on you. You are a joy and liberation activist. You're the owner and host of Speaking of Racism podcast. You're the founder of The Legacy Trips and you're co-founder of Here for the Kids. And you consider yourself a nomad. Is that still correct? That is still correct. I consider myself a minimalist nomad. A minimalist nomad. Okay, so I usually ask my guests where they are in the world right now. Do you mind, do you want to share just a little bit of where you are or what your day-to-day is, who you live with? Yeah, happy to. So I am in a little Tico town in the Central Valley of Costa Rica. And um, I will say that Tico is the cultural term that the local Costa Ricans use to describe themselves. So um, Ticos and Ticas. So the folks know what that term means that I use. And I am, I live in this sexy little studio pool house um, on a lot of land. I have, I live here with my cat, Alice Walker, um, who also belongs to the land. I, she walked into my life during the time that I was reading, um, Alice Walker's journals, um, this past summer. And that's how she got the name of Alice Walker. Cause she walked into my life and really made it more beautiful, um, than it already was before. And so that's why she got the name of Alice Walker. And you know, my neighbors are cows and horses that kind of um, run wild at times. Sometimes they're next door, you know, where they're supposed to be. And sometimes they are in the street um, in front of my house. Sometimes they're getting stuck in my yard and I have to <laughs> like rally them out of my yard. I, I live here amongst the local Costa Rican folks in this town. And I also am in community with a beautiful community of Black expats. There's a lot of us here, um, not just in Costa Rica, because yes, there are thousands of us living here in Costa Rica, but in this little town where I live, there's a good number of us. And so this, these are the folks that I socialize with and interact with in, in a variety of different ways. And I have been living here for a year and a half. Okay. And that's, yeah, after living in Jamaica for about a year. And um, yeah, that's where I'm coming to you yeah. from on the yeah. planet. And, th- and this is part of your story with Quote, divorcing America and leaving America. And I I love this for you, that you are in this beautiful, safe world for yourself, surrounded by nature. So I usually do ask my guests to start off. And again, we can't fit it all in an hour, but I just would love to hear a little bit of your origin story that you would like to share, because I think so much of that drives our passion and purpose. And you can go as far back with your ancestors as you would like. You share in your book about your grandmother, but just where, where you would like to start with that, that you feel is, is relevant and important right now. So I'm going to try to keep this brief because I could go on and on and I want, and like you're saying, I want folks to read the book and then they'll kind of have a better connection to the way that I talk about my ancestry. So for the purposes of this, I, I think that the first thing that I will say is I am the descendant of enslaved Africans, and um, I am the granddaughter of Donald and May Perkins, and I'm also the granddaughter of Claude and Olivia Christopher. I am the daughter of James and Linda Christopher, and I am a survivor of the doctrine of hell. And that's how I think I want to describe. And I haven't actually used that terminology publicly yet. I've said it in some of my private circles. Um, As I am continually unpacking my upbringing in evangelical, conservative, fundamentalist Christianity, like that is, that is 
a part of my identity, which just like being American, I won't ever be able to um, separate myself from completely divorce it. Yes, I am always, I am American, no matter where I am on the planet, that is the way that the world sees and interacts with me and vice versa. And in that same way, I'm also a product of conservative, evangelical, fundamental uh, Christianity. And um, because that that was my upbringing in both the white church, white Christian church, as well as in the black Christian church, which is, I mean, to be honest, in, in so many ways, it is a, a, just another face of the white Christian church. So those are the identities that I bring into spaces where I'm asked to talk about my origin and my ancestry, that, that that's real. And I think it's also important for me to identify and say that I have experienced abandonment and rejection mm-hmm. from, and have also in turn made decisions to divorce myself from these institutions for my own safety protection and, um, and, and my humanity as a queer black radical feminist. I don't fit inside of spaces of organized religion or spaces that are built upon very proudly, you know, whether consciously or so unconsciously, uh, the, the, the foundation of white supremacy or the patriarchy or capitalism, which just makes me on the outside of anything that those things represent, which mm-hmm. includes the, the country where I was born. I don't know back in my ancestry further than what I just shared with you. So that's why I have to answer the question the way that I do, because that's a, that's as far back as I know, that's as far back as I have gone. And I have a level of respect for where I have come from while also needing to be honest about the fact that um, the spaces that raised me are no longer the spaces that are and haven't been safe for me inside of Christianity, right? Um, they haven't been safe for me and they aren't safe for me today. And so in the same way that they have abandoned me as a queer Black woman, I have also made a decision to prioritize being in spaces that celebrate all of me, celebrate me in my full humanity. And I didn't find that inside of the church, nor did I find that inside of the country. So I made a decision to leave and that's really who I am. And how I show up in the world. And that's also what the book is about. Thank you for sharing all that. Cause I know those words and feelings that are all attached to what you just said can be hard to dredge up. And that's where your story really as a white woman, obviously a very different experience in those spaces, because I could fit in those boxes a lot, a lot better, but as a white woman also raised in those conservative evangelical spaces and raised my daughters in them. Um, I just, mm-hmm. And was a help, you know, that perfect homeschool mom too. All the things that you were, Tina, that I really had no idea until I dove into your story. Got me, you got married when you were 21, heterosexual marriage, three kids. Mm-hmm. Like you were playing the part, weren't you? I was. I yeah. was. I and was just, trying to be proper and trying to be that Proverbs 31 woman, trying to be like my mother. Yes. Um, yeah, trying to to do all those things I thought would guarantee uh safety and protection for myself. If the more I assimilated into whiteness and into this the facade that is the American dream, I thought that that would protect me. The more I um you know assimilated into even the patriarchy and the structures of right. of the what the Bible has held up as, you know, husbands being the heads of households and wives being, you know, required to be submissive and what that Proverbs 31 woman looks like. You know, I I appreciate the sensitivity you have around 
the trauma that that does bring up in just going back to the ways that I was raised and the ways that, that, that I was lied to, right. All of us. And that's why I was telling you that this book is for you also as a white woman coming out of the church in that way, Mm -hmm. recognizing that it was also set up and designed to oppress you. And so that's what makes this book for you also is because you decided to go on your own journey of liberation and you had to break free from that oppressive religious structure and so that's that's why um, I say this book is for you and for anyone who's asked those liberation questions of themselves. That's who it's for. It's we just we just got to really look at that. So I just appreciate your sensitivity and understanding that it is challenging to dredge it up and talk about it. But it is the only thing I want to be talking about because okay. I just believe okay. that that that's how we get free is by talking about these things that they don't want us to talk about. Because right. can you imagine? If yeah. those wives that are sitting in homes where they are really underneath in so many ways, all these different oppressive systems, what would it mean? What could it mean for them to hear you and I talking about what we did to get free like that? Right. That's, that's why we have to talk about it at all times. And that's where the hope is. You're so right. Thank you for saying that. Cause I, and I think that shows just how far you are in your healing and liberation journey. And I'm not as far as long. Cause I still am like, it's, it's hard to talk. I mean, I do talk about it and I've lost friends, community, all of that, like you, um, but it's still like, a, it can be a lot for your system sometimes to bring up when you're in the middle of the healing. One of the things you said, well, I have so many notes from your book, but, um, that really was freeing. You said, I made the decision to honor who I was then and gave her grace. So just forgiveness for your own mm-hmm. self. Cause I think so many of us can be like, damn it. I see the, I see how I damaged my own child. I see how I damaged the black community. Like I see all this stuff that I did when I was in that place, but just giving yourself freedom or just forgiveness and grace for who you Mm -hmm. were then was really a powerful statement. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, no one's asked me about that particular chapter. I know, of course I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I actually wondered if I needed to even include it in the book, like when it came down to deciding what are we going to keep and what are we going to remove? And that just really felt important that I had to, if I'm on a journey to grieve who I was so that I could heal into who I'm going to become, I had to reconcile who I was back then when I thought I was doing all those right things. And I thought I was, you know, as that Um, woman who wanted to be the Proverbs 31 woman and wife and homeschooled mom. Like I was doing what I thought was best for my kids at the time. And it's been really interesting also like having those conversations with my kids now who are adults, they're 22 and 24 and 26 and asking them what they remember about that time in our life when I homeschooled and what was it like, you know, being a part of that very well-known, you know, Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. you know, um, church and being, we were very ingrained in it for many years. And um, as well, like th- th- talking to my kids now and just hearing their perspective, I had to, you know, as parents, especially when our kids become adults, they will absolutely remind you of all the ways that you fucked up <laughs> in raising them. Right. And so I've had to have I've had to have a level of humility to be able to come to my children who are now adults and say, there were so many areas and ways that I, you know, messed up and I need to apologize for it. I need to sit in the, the reality and the truth of 
being willing to listen to how it affected them, right? And so these things that I share in the book, having brought up really good conversation with my kids about what it was like coming up in our very conservative homeschooling household, um, as well as, you know, even I share some about my oldest daughter and some of the darkest times in her life and, you know, having a conversation with her about, you know, how she feels about me talking about that, obviously from the perspective of the mother, I didn't go through all that she went through, but it is her story. Um, and so, you know, even having that conversation and then recognizing that I'm writing it from the point of view of a mother who mm -hmm. felt very, very helpless in a situation where my adult child is going through this crisis. And also because of our mother-daughter dynamic, having to recognize that I didn't show up even in her with, for her in the best way, like in the way that I would want to now and like having to have that conversation. So all throughout our grieving and healing journey, we have to learn to hold space of grace and forgiveness for ourselves yeah. and who we were so that we can really step fully into who we're becoming. Yeah. I'm so glad you left that chapter because it also just ties back to shame. I mean, that's what wants to keep us violent. I mean, that is so directly when we feel ashamed or embarrassed or whatever. So I, I think it was really important that you included that chapter. So that I'm very glad that you did. I could keep talking to you about this, Tina, but we can't talk the whole hour about this. I too have a 20 year old that I have had these conversations with a 20 year old that suffers with mental illness that I so I've read like so many similarities and stories. I also have wow. a 14 year old though now that I'm not raising in that. And I just see, so it's a little bit of redemption for me, but again, going back to our older Beautiful. kids that we raised in it, like it, it's a hard, hard thing, but talking to them about it, um, just without a filter, just letting them say the hard things to us, um, is such yeah. an important part of this healing process. It is. Okay. It is. I'm going to shift gears. It's not really shifting gears because it's all related, but it's shifting gears a little bit to your activism journey, because I think that's going to lead us into the conversation. And again, I know it's all part of it because you are healing from all this religious bullshit that means capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. You're coming to terms with your, not to terms, I, that's, I don't like to put it that way. You're embracing your own queerness and who, who you actually are once you get out of the, the toxic theology, the heteronormative theology. So with that, you decide you're involved, you're working in the fitness in industry, and then you really enter becoming an activist. And one of the exercises you have us do, you have your own timeline of your activism. You say in 2017, you first called yourself an activist and you also ask us to create our own activism timeline. So going back to the book, I love how you intermingle, intertwine your story with what you're asking the reader to do. So 2017, you call yourself an activist. 2018, you read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And that opened up a whole I don't know, a whole world, an idea that really started the legacy trip. So I'd love for you just to share a little bit about that, because that is such an important part of your story and timeline. Absolutely. I'll, I want to say first that I think that 2017 was a time that so many of us were activated. And that's why I named that particular time. And I actually talk about it now a lot also with Here for the Kids, because so many of us, and I think 
specifically white women, can point to the Women's March of 2017 as the moment that they may see themselves having been activated. Yeah. Um, and that reasoning being Donald Trump becoming president. So I think for a lot of white women reading this book that that might be where their activism timeline begins. Whereas mine began the summer before that, which was July of 2016, when I had been, I was at the peak of my fitness career, uh, living in a suburb of Atlanta at the time. And I had assimilated into whiteness my entire life and in particular in my fitness career um, to the point where um, I was accident, I was scrolling through Facebook one day and accidentally saw the videos of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling being killed by police. And what that did for me in that moment was break me. Um, that was the moment that I became radicalized in a way that I did not understand um, would change the course of my life, right? Um, because what I know is that as I experienced um, grief upon seeing the way that those beautiful Black men were murdered by police, I then was at, I then I was expected to go into the yoga studio the next morning and teach my normal yoga classes to a, you know, a class of, of, of very wealthy, able-bodied, cis, het, white folks um, who were coming to have a physical experience in their yoga class. And I was broken. I didn't know how to relate to them or even to myself in those moments when I first um, watch that, that those, those viral videos of the murder of black men. And that broke me in a way that I will never be the same. And that actually was where I point to as the beginning of my, what I call my racial awakening. And then of course, fast forward to November of 2016, Donald Trump becomes president. And then we come into January of 2017 and the women's March, right? And we all kind of get activated. And it was at that point where um, I started getting involved with some of the local liberal online mommy groups um, in the Atlanta area. And they were doing really um, amazing things at that time. The, just, just these grassroots movements and organizations that were coming up to, with the purpose of flipping seats in Georgia to blue. That's where I got that's where I became politically aware. And during that journey, I, that's when I found the book, uh, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, read that book. And that just added an additional layer to the work that I had already started doing in getting racially aware, um, getting politically activated. And now I have this perspective and understanding from this Black civil rights attorney who's created the Equal Justice Initiative. And I'm now seeing that the effects of being a country with the legacy of enslavement, how that has simply changed and shifted from a, a, a legacy of enslavement to now a legacy of mass incarceration and all of the legalities that hold that up, right? So now that I've, I'm seeing it through a different lens and through Brian Stevenson's words, and that shaped me and changed me. And so then I heard about the Equal Justice Initiative's uh, projects of the lynching memorial. Uh, the title of it is actually the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Uh, and then also the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And so at this time, I'm at kind of this point where I my, my activism begins bleeding into my teaching because I'm still in the fitness industry, just in a couple of different, I'm in different studios and boutiques, cycle and yoga studios and boutiques around the Atlanta area and primarily 
uh, the Alpharetta area and again, suburbs of Atlanta. So my teaching began to bleed into my activism. My activism began to bleed into my teaching. And so I found myself in that um, season of the 2018 midterm elections, uh, getting trained on how to host voter registration drives. And that's what I would then do throughout that election season is host a dozen of them um, with other volunteers and other, other folks who wanted to see Stacey Abrams become the first black woman governor in the history of the United States, right? So I had begun attaching my my values, my personal identity as a black woman to my values as someone who wanted to affect change politically. And creating legacy trips is how my activism and my teaching came together. Um, and that's how Legacy Trip started in 2018. Legacy Trip still continues. We'll um, make sure to do a website link to that because I know there's a, I think the next trip is with my, my friend, Patricia Taylor, Patty Taylor yes. coming up yes. um, in that's June. Right. So that's right. the last trip was with Tommy Allgood and, and Letty Gore, and that was a sold out powerful trip. And some of the trips are for white, black, brown, all bodies. Some of them are specifically for black, brown, and indigenous people. And you can find all of that on the, on the website, but essentially they are three-day trips to go I remember you said in your book, like you just envisioned white people going to those and then going out to Applebee's afterwards and just like, not a big deal. Like you really mm -hmm. want white people to experience black, white, brown, indigenous, all people to experience, but you really need white people to be feeling that trip and seeing and what actually happened um, there. So I've heard nothing but amazing things about it. The trips, Tina, I have not been on one yet, but I will go on one. Like it is on my list. Is there anything else you want to share about the legacy trips in particular? I don't want to rush over that because they're they're huge. We could do a whole episode on that, but I know we have other things to also talk about. Yeah, no, I'm, I actually think you um, explained it beautifully. So I, and I'm really impressed for someone who hasn't even been on a trip and the way that you just, you just laid out the commercial for it. Yeah, that's, that's what the work is. <laughs> Believe I me, I have read great. all about it. I so wanted to go on the last one and I so want to go on this one with Patty, but I, neither are working, but they are going to work. One of them is going to work and I'm going to be there at the, when I'm supposed to be there. So 2018 is when you led your first legacy trip. We're still on your, your, your activism timeline, Tina. That's what I have written down here. By the summer of 2019, you decide you're retiring from your 15 year fitness career because you're just going to completely focus on your activism work and your anti-racism work. But then we have 2020 that came and really a lot of things came with 2020. So we have COVID that made everything go online. Then we have the horrific deaths that we finally, white people got to see, so they could not keep denying it. Um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of these things start happening. Um, not start, they've always been happening, but we're seeing them happen. And you said, I was struggling to cope with all the black deaths of the time. And I got to a place where I could no longer help myself. So I could no longer help the whites because we also saw a lot of white people just filling up all those chairs suddenly. We decided mm -hmm. to put on our black, put up our black boxes, become, mm -hmm. read all the books and you saw it, but your black body was just filled with so much grief that you just were realizing I can't actually do this and help myself. So do you care sharing just a little bit more about that time? Because that really led you on a, I think the next phase of your liberation really. Yeah. And again, I'm just, I'm just smiling. Of course, your audience can't see how big mm -hmm. my smile is right now. Listening to you describe it, um, it very, very accurately and um, it, just beautifully the way that you have just broken down <laughs> what, what, what took place. 
So I would add very little to what you shared other than um, 2020 was a, a pivotal moment for so many of us and so much transformation took place that needed to. Um, and so from a personal perspective, what that looked like for me was deciding, making a decision to prioritize, first of all, my grief and my healing. Um, but that led me to a place of recognizing that the ways that I wanted to interact inside of my racial and social justice work needed to shift from focusing on the anti-racism facilitator, educator, because at that time, at the beginning of 2020, I found myself scheduled to be all over the country leading um, screenings and discussions of, at the time, HBO's documentary, True Justice, um, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality. That's what I was doing. And I was also traveling to lead anti-racism and yoga um, workshops. And um, by the time COVID hit and shut everything down, I had already gone to Dallas and LA and New York City to do that. And then of course, like I said, COVID hit, giving all of us the opportunity to take a pause and just look at what in our lives could shift, right? And many of us did make a shift and some didn't. And just where this led me is to wanting to, if I'm identifying that I need to prioritize my grieving and my healing because I need to go on this liberation journey, it also was where I made the decision to no longer call myself or identify as an anti-racism educator. And now the switch and the flip came to identifying as a joy advocate, a black joy advocate, a liberation activist, and how that's still tied to the work as an anti-racism facilitator educator, but I got to flip and, and change the framing of it where I'm now centering what I think are liberatory practices such as joy and peace and pleasure and rest. And those are things that I believe are the revolution, Black folks experiencing liberation, because when we are free, then we can then finally say everyone is free. And until we are free, no one is free. So then what are those components that will put us on the path to liberation? It's centering joy and peace and pleasure and rest for black folks, for black women, for queer and trans black folks. Like it's, it, that is what my, uh, where my liberation or my activism journey took a turn in 2020 and brought me to where I am right now. You said, I realized that in my fight to tear down white supremacy, I was actually allowing the fight to tear me down. And it's just, it's so simple yet so profound. And it's, it's, so beautifully intertwined in your book. Again, when you talk about the breath work, the meditation, the cannabis pleasure, like there's so much in your book. You just masterly, masterfully weave it is beautiful because at the same time, you're having your own really, we're talking about your activism timeline. You're having a lot of your own personal grief that you're very vulnerable in your book, sharing about your first husband passing away, your divorce and hard times with your your wife at that time, things with your daughter and her mental health, like so much. You're so, and that's where the intersectionality comes in. So you, as a black woman, you have these things that like we're grieving, people are grieving, but then you have all, all the grief from being a black queer woman in this country mm -hmm. and what you're seeing. So your body has so, so much that you are trying to grieve at this time. Um, and I, your chapters on grief are beautiful. I could have, could like reread the whole entirety of them. You say grieving is the starting point to getting free. 
and just allowing yourself to grieve. So you got you got away from the white supremacy that was, even though you were fighting it, it was really breaking down your body and you just gave yourself time to grieve. And I think it's, it's, that's such an important pivotal part that so many of us just pass through. That's what it is. We are, and, and we pass through it because of capitalism, right? Capitalism does not want us to sit with our grief. Um, capitalism does not want our suffering to last um, too long um, in, in terms of what we could, the, the healing that can take place as a result of coming to terms with and, and living to learn with an active um, practice of grieving as an active and intentional step towards freedom and, and getting ourselves free. Capitalism won't allow for that. So making that very intentional decision to step back and go on hiatus and, you know, and, and do what I can do to remove myself from the oppressive system that is capitalism, which, you know, meant that 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 was a part of my journey in um, uh, retiring from the fitness industry. Like right. if I don't have that connection to this other, this, this, this corporation that is designed to be the structure of capitalism, where um, we are exploiting people, where we are, where there is profit above people. Like, so what does it look like to free ourselves and work outside of capitalism? And I'm not saying that I'm free from capitalism. I don't, we, none of us can be in a capitalist society, but yet what we are experiencing is, and what 2020 also kind of offered us is, can we have an imagination of who we can be outside of capitalism? If folks, what we're seeing is the, the rise of people also quitting their jobs, right? Quitting their nine to fives, quitting those things and going out and starting their own business or going out or and deciding that they want to. And, and that was also the catalyst for me becoming a minimalist nomad is mm -hmm. the only reason I needed to be, well, not the only reason, but one of the things that attached me to capitalism is the need to pay for all of my shit. So if I need to pay for all of my shit, I have to have the job that has the big enough amount on that paycheck coming every two weeks so that I can pay for all my shit. And what I asked myself and my, my ex-wife also at the time when we came to this decision to become minimalist nomads and get rid of all of our shit is, well, if we reduce our expenses enough, then we don't, we don't need to have this, you know, make all this money, which would for which forces us to be inside of the capitalist system of working for a corporation, which is which we're now just going to be income enslaved to that. So this is obviously I'm going off into I think even no. things that I don't cover in the book, but maybe just touch on a little bit. But it's so intertwined. And that's why when I said I had anxiety, how we're going to cover all this, because there's so much, it's very <laughs> intertwined. But I think um again, your book does a really good job of interweaving it together because all these. I mean, we have white supremacy at the top, but all these systems are tangling down from us, tangling yeah. down from it, ha having a huge grip on us. And they're all related. So when we talked about not taking the time to grieve, that's related to capitalism because we don't exactly. have the time to take away. So exactly. they're all connected. So you're not at all going off because it re really is all so connected. Um, I'm keeping an eye on the time because we're going to talk about, we're going to finish, we're going to take our remaining time to talk about here for the kids, but I want to just back loop just a little bit because we just got done saying you decided to take a break from this. Um, you'd had it white people. You were starting to hate him. You share that very openly. And I can only imagine. And so <laughs> you, you were done like being an activist, anti-racist educator, like it was starting to take its toll on you. So fast forward to here we are. And again, we're skipping over so much again. That's why y'all need to just to buy the book. 
Fast forward to now, and there's a huge movement that you are now a part of. Because your book, you very much talk about divorcing America. Now, you also end with, very similar to James Baldwin, like, I, I still love this country, but I just, I, I hate what it stands for and what it, and I, I still want to make it better. So help me understand a little bit though, how you got here, Tina, to be part of a co-founder of Here for the Kids, um, because this is a very, so for those that are not on Instagram, I'm assuming most people are, but not everybody is, Here for the Kids is a movement that, it, a movement that just started literally, what, what, like a month ago, Tina? Yeah. Yeah. Four weeks ago. Okay. It is literally fighting the second amendment, which is rooted in white supremacy, not what we were told in our history books that it was rooted in. Um, like, I guess if it, we were told it was rooted in America, that's still white supremacy, but it was literally <laughs> an, it literally written to help white people protect their property, their women and against slave revolts. So here for the kids is an, would you say an anti-gun movement, I guess, an anti-second amendment movement? Um, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. We're fighting the second amendment. And Tina, somehow you are part of being the co-founder when you wanted to get out of all this. So tell me how that happened. And then we'll talk about what this means yeah. for, for white people. I think what happened is, and what grounds me in kind of what will for now and forever more be known as before here for the kids and after here for the kids. Um, because I do believe that not just my life uh, will change uh, on June 5th, all of our lives will change on June 5th. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we talk about here for the kids, but that the thing um, that I, that grounded me to this new phase, new iteration of my work slash my life is legacy trips in the sense that because I have been leading groups of folks of all racial and gender identities back and forth to Montgomery and Selma for the past several years, I now understand in a practical sense of why I've been doing that. Mm -hmm. um, because the invitation is, and you, again, you described it very beautifully, is for everyone to face the truth uh, and the reality of who this nation is. And I don't believe we're able to do that if we're not coming to truth with the history that is really um, hidden and buried. And yet the Equal Justice Initiative has illuminated it specifically, very directly confronting it head on um, with the lynching memorial and the Legacy Museum. And so what I came to is while I was stepping away from calling myself and identifying as an anti-racism educator and facilitator in the sense that I was no longer going to be traveling with the intention of gathering with a bunch of white folks to help them on their anti-racism journeys. Like I, that iteration of my work came to an end in 2020 when I decided to prioritize my grief and my healing, which led me to a place of, of celebrating my humanity and making the decision that I believe that black joy, black pleasure, black rest is the revolution. So I'm actually gonna ground my work there. So my work shifted away from coaching and consulting and you know, facilitating again in the ways that I was, but yet legacy trips, I've no that that was still there. And I fully believe, and that's my passion work is is legacy trips and 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 what I what I knew from the beginning uh, and from the moment I started them I knew that legacy trips was bigger than me, and so I just really set out to get out of my own way, as it related to 
what legacy trips was going to do. So I, I guess in a sense, I've kind of felt removed from legacy trips in the sense that, you know, what wound up happening is after I personally led and, and organized and facilitated all the legacy trips during 2018, 2019, I came to a place where I realized that this is a community project. This is this community work. I'm not going to be the only facilitator. I need to bring other folks in. And so that's why we now have, you know, there's a, 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 a team of uh, Black um, educators and teachers and facilitators and leaders in this work and in this movement that do this with me. So now Legacy Trips remains this community project that I began that has grounded me in bringing groups of people to Montgomery and Selma to take a look at the history, to see how that changes, shapes, reforms their identities as Americans. And of course, that being a different experience for white Americans who have been, you know, that you all learn whatever it is that you learn during Black History Month in school, which by the way, is at right now, the Republicans are working very hard to make sure no white kids continue to learn the truth of our history so that the white kids don't feel bad about the fact that the, the history, the very foundation of this nation is the genocide of the indigenous people and the exploitation and enslavement of Africans. Like, so we're in this whole different place, right? And so where that brought me to today is recognizing that everybody has to come to terms with the reality and the truth of who we are as Americans. And that's what Legacy Trips ultimately is seeks to do by taking Black folks, white folks, non-Black folks of color to interact with some of the truth about what took place, um, not only since the inception of the country, right, back in the um, 1700s, hell, the 1600s, right, um, to the 1800s when we do have the Civil War, we do have emancipation, we do have you know, right, the, this this is where it shifted from being um, enslavement then just evolved into mass and the system of, of mass incarceration and what we have is the prison industrial complex. So all of that to say, what brought me to Here for the Kids is recognizing that if we look back at the work that Black people, Black revolutionaries, Black civil rights leaders have been doing for decades and for centuries and for generations. If we look at the blueprint that they gave for us, it was to show up in acts of civil disobedience, to go up against the system, to fight white supremacy and anti-Blackness. And that is what the Second Amendment is. And that is what we are asking for white women in particular to do and to show up by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands to put your bodies on the line by showing up in Denver on June 5th to demand that Governor Jared Polis sign this executive order to ban guns and buy them back. And the thing that brought me to this movement and this work in co-founding this and leading this is the work I've been doing for these past several years with legacy trips. And this is just the moment where, I mean, this is why I say this is our Denver is our Selma. This is the moment where we're being asked to stand up in the face of, are we going to continue the efforts of getting more gun legislation? And you know that work has taken place and I'm not saying that work is not needed and valuable in some ways, but I'm saying that because today, 24 years after Columbine, guns is the number one killer of kids, I'm saying, 
we actually need to have an approach that is apart from anti-gun legislation. And it needs to now be completely abolishing guns. And so that's what brings me to this moment is are people willing, are white women in particular willing to show up, put their white bodies, their privilege and their power on the line to make a demand of the governor to ban guns so that all kids can have a chance at living in an America where guns is not the number one thing killing them. That's right. And so like you just mentioned, you're specifically asking white women to show up. This movement is being led by, by black, brown, and indigenous, indigenous women. Yes. So white women are following the leadership of you all. Syra is another one of the leaders who was on yes. four podcasts, five podcasts ago. And when she was on, this was not even in the works. And so it's been amazing to see this movement take off. I think you guys have like 40,000 Instagram followers. It is unreal. And yes. so white women seem like they are getting on board to be there. You need to go to the website here for the kids. If you're just now hearing about this, there's a whole Q and a white women need to commit and RSVP on the website. The hope is thousands, like 25,000 white women to be there, to show up, to sit our bodies on the front lawn and, and wait for the governor to sign that executive order. And I know you, you did make a little Instagram video about that because there's some backlash coming as stuff always happens and white supremacy showing up as always. So a couple of the things specifically talk into why you're asking white women, you're not excluding. I know some maybe are feeling excluded. You're not excluding black, brown and indigenous women, but you want to be really honest that this is not safe entirely. I mean, safety is an illusion anyway, but maybe just speak into that, why you're asking white women specifically, and you're not excluding another group. Absolutely. And it's exactly what you said. It's about safety and protection, which on one hand, I also agree with you. Those are not real things. But what we do know is real that the historically and statistically, the demographic of people that are the least likely to be brutalized by police are white women. So we know what happens when black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks show up in mass numbers to make demands of the government, right? Again, let's refer back to the civil rights movement. Let's refer back to Bloody Sunday and, you know, Governor George Wallace unleashing the Alabama state troopers on the peaceful protesters that had gathered to go from Sel- to march from Selma to Montgomery. So what I'm asking people to recognize and to consider, this is what I'm asking you as white women to consider as well. Everyone think about the Women's March of 2017 and think about all of the millions of people that showed up for that march all around the world. It was inspiring. It was motivating. It was very moving and captivating and people were on fire, but that was a very different thing. That was pink pussy hats. And that was, you know, stages and concerts and selfies with the cops. Like that was this organized thing where permits had to be gotten in cities all over the, the you know, all over the place. What we are doing, what I've asked for white women to consider is get out of your mind, the image of the women's March of 2017. And I need you to think about Selma of 1965, because that's what we're asking you to do. We're asked, this is an act of civil disobedience We are not, there will not be any concerts, stages, speakers. There will not be any permits. This is you all showing up, putting your white women bodies, privilege and power physically on the line in the face of the power, the powers that be by making this demand for this democratic governor 
to sign an executive order to ban guns. At first, it just doesn't get any more radical than that. So of course, a uh, you know, of course, black and brown women are the ones to have to create this strategy and execute it. So this is why we are specifically asking white women to show up because of what their privilege and their power and the literal color of their skin provides them in terms of protection at a situation in a situation where there will be a police presence. So it is not a matter of excluding any groups. So as a matter of fact, this is a, like, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to say everyone is welcome. And we are asking people of the global majority and peoples of culture and marginalized communities and the disabled community, we're asking you to not come because we can't protect you. Because whatever is gonna take place, none of us know what to expect. Because we are prioritizing the protection of the black and brown and indigenous community and disabled community and communities that are marginalized. We are asking for you to participate in a different way but not in a bodily way that's gonna put you at more harm than we already are just by living and moving and breathing in America. Yeah, you said that so well, thank you for that. It's a matter of white women using our privilege and Mm -hmm. showing up and you're not wanting to exclude everybody, others. You're just wanting to make sure others groups are protected that haven't historically been protected. The other thing I'd like to touch on, this is not a competition with, this is how white supremacy is showing up. This is not a competition with, Mm the other groups that are already there, Moms Demand Action, like you're, keep going. Those groups are great. Join in with this. This is a movement. This is a movement. This is not an organization and not a competition. Do you want to speak into that more or does that? Yeah, yeah, no, I will. Because I think that's a very important point to note and to specifically attach to and tie to white supremacy. Yes, Mm -hmm. white supremacy wants to make everything a competition. There's always got to be a winner. There's got to be a loser. There's got to be, you know, so that's, we are seeing that level of that competitive nature that comes from white supremacy and the patriarchy that is showing up. Absolutely. And so I want to be clear about a couple of things. Um, One, the work that organizations have been doing is important and necessary and should continue as a queer radical Black feminist, I believe that all of us have to attempt multiple ways to get free. There is not just one way. We are all going to have to be very creative in the ways that we um, create our own liberatory paths. So I am not going to, um, it's not necessary for me to spend any time talking about what someone shouldn't be doing as they are trying to get free, right? That is also just really duplicating white supremacist systems in an attempt to get free, right? So I'm not going to spend time. It doesn't make sense for me to 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 come out against any of the other organizations, any other anti-gun movements. You do what you do and keep doing it. And what I'm also going to do and be very clear about is I have to stand firmly in whatever has taken place previous to now has not worked. And so what we are doing is we are daring to say, we're gonna actually step outside of trying, of calling our senators, of waiting for legislation to happen in the halls of government and outside of thoughts and prayers. And we're just gonna take action by saying enough. We actually are placing ourselves in 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 a space that has not been occupied before. That's why this movement is unexplored. It's unprecedented because we are actually demanding a total ban of all guns. This is an abolitionist strategy. I'm gonna leave that there, but people need to pay attention to that as well. 
we are being, we are directly going for all guns, not some guns. So now I'm talking about fundamental differences in the movements, right? In the work that's being done. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't serve anybody for me to just spend time dogging the people that have been doing it the way they've been doing it. Great. Over the past 24 years, we got a lot of gun legislation. Awesome. If you feel like that's working for you, keep doing that. I'm over here saying 24 years after Columbine, while we do have the most gun legislation in the country that we've ever had, what we also have is that guns are the number one killer of kids. So we have to have an imagination outside of what's been what's been done and what is being doing, what, what, what people are currently doing. And that's what here for the kids is. And that's why it's resonating with so many people because it is just so radical that people believe this actually is going to work. I believe it's going to work. I'm going to be there full honesty. I sat on it if I was going to be there because it's a real disruption to my plan schedule, Tina. Okay. And my whiteness mm-hmm. showed up mm-hmm. right away. Like, mm-hmm. wait, no, we're moving. I have a trip plan, like all the things, but then the more mm-hmm. I, listen to the black and brown leaders. And I thought, what has been the point of me listening and learning for the last two years, if I'm not going to show up when they're asking me to, I will be there, but my whiteness showed up a lot to get me there to prevent me from getting there. I should say, Um, I am going to keep encouraging white women to really just sit with yourself. If you have these excuses of why you can't be there Mm. because it's not, you can't, you don't want to be, you don't want to rearrange your schedule. And I know Mm. because I know I sat there. One of the things you say in your book, and again, your book was written before this movement. You say, white people keep your false allyship. Give us your radical activism. And that's what this movement is asking. That's what we're asking. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Tina, we got to wrap up. I could keep talking about the movement, but I'm going to tell people go follow here for the kids. IG is here for the kids action. And then online is here for the kids.com. Go follow both of those to find out more. Tina, where can they follow you and find you and on Instagram and all those things right now and find out about legacy trips? People can find me on Instagram at uh, speaking of racism. That's the name of the podcast. And they can go to legacy trips, follow us at legacy trips. That's also where you can learn more about our trips, what's coming up, who's facilitating. Um, You can follow me on my personal page, which is Tina underscore strong underscore life. And that's, you know, me sharing about everything, really. Yeah, like you said, thank you for sharing all of the places people can follow and learn more and get involved at Here for the Kids. Tina, thank you so much for this last hour. I'm just very, very grateful that you've given me an hour of your of your time in the middle of your, your piece that you've created for yourself there. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed having this conversation. Thanks for listening in on this conversation with Tina Strawn. I cannot encourage you enough to go buy Tina's book and let her words and story guide you in your own journey towards freedom and liberation. As Tina says, no two journeys look alike, but her book does a beautiful job of guiding readers of what it can look like for them. Also, please head to the Here for the Kids website at hereforthekids.com. H-E-R-E, the number four, T-H-E, KIDS.com to learn more information about how you can get involved with this movement. Guns are the number one killer of kids in our country, and already, just 130 days in to 2023, there have been over 200 mass shootings in America. It doesn't have to be this way. Our kids don't have to live and die this way. So, to you, my white listeners, I hope to see you in Denver June 5th with Here for the Kids.